KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. When Steve Jobs called Ken Burns about a new iMovie effect he had developed as a tribute to the documentary filmmaker, he didn't get the response he'd been hoping for. This is December of 2002, and you said every Mac computer beginning next month will have this on it. And I said, okay, great. And he says, and we want to keep our working title. And I said, oh, what's that? And he said, Ken Burns Effect. And I said, look, I don't do commercial endorsements. And he goes, what? Ken Burns joins us to talk about his latest series, The American Buffalo. The two-part doc looks at the close relationship between indigenous people and North America's largest mammal, and how white settlers almost drove the species to extinction. He also talks about how he makes his series his way, and he sheds some light on that recently surfaced photo of him with Clarence Thomas and David Koch. But first two buddies banter while I take a break. Stick around, it's the business from KCRW. I'm Matt Bellany, filling in for Kim Masters, and today we've got Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. Welcome, Lucas. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I know there's a lot of very important and often disturbing things going on in the world, but today we're going to talk about this feud between Ari Emanuel, the CEO of Endeavor, the sports and agency and licensing company, and Brian Lord, the CEO of Creative Arts Agency, CIA, the largest pure talent agency in the world. So you hosted an event for Bloomberg this past week, and you had both these guys as Q&A guests at the conference. Ari started the conference, and Brian ended it. And Ari had some thoughts on Brian when he <laughs> spoke at your conference. Um, I think what happened here, just to give a little backstory, there was a lawsuit filed against CAA and others by the actress Julia Ormond in which she alleges that CAA essentially enabled Harvey Weinstein in the mid-90s to abuse her by setting up meetings and actively telling her not to report the incident after she was sexually assaulted by Weinstein. Now, CAA has denied this and has said that it will prove itself in court. But I noted in my Puck newsletter that oftentimes when there are investigations at companies, the executives step aside during those investigations. CAA had said that they were investigated by their law firm. And Ari clearly had read that. And he argued at your conference that the CAA guys should step aside, arguing that they have no morals and that they are the equivalent of Ghislaine Maxwell to Jeffrey Epstein here. Why do you think Ari did this? Whew, you're asking me to get inside the mind of Ari Emanuel. That's a tough one. I will say Ari, for most of his career, CAA was the larger competitor. They were the gold standard in the industry. And so poking them made a lot of sense for him because he was trying to elevate his company to their level. He's now reached a point where, as an agency, CAA is probably still larger and more powerful than WME, the agency that Ari owns. But Ari's company, Endeavor, is bigger because it owns a big part of a company that owns UFC and WWE. And I think there's a degree to which he can't help himself. You know, it should be noted, I didn't actually ask about that <laughs> lawsuit in particular. He had been interviewed on a podcast earlier this year. I believe it was the Freakonomics podcast. And they asked him about the competition 
and like the deal that CAA was doing with the French billionaire. And he said that he would pay the salary of those guys to stick around in sort of classic Ari poke the bear because he thinks that they're doing a bad job and it's made his job easier. And so I just sort of like opened the door for him to say whatever he wanted to about CAA. And he jumped in full bore, frankly, harder than I was expecting on that subject. And look. Oh, he was ready. Uh, he had that it, teed up. Oh, he was definitely ready. Yes. But I think part of it was he may feel a sense of personal repulsion and as an agent believe that CAA has done something wrong here. But he's also clearly taken an opportunity at which there are questions about his company. His stock price isn't where they would like it to be to try to curry favor with big clients. I mean, what was sort of remarkable was that he specifically called out Meryl Streep and Margot Robbie and these big name celebrities and saying sort of where are they? Why are they still with CAA? Sort of classic, like, come over here, we're better. Right. It makes sense that Ari, I guess, would do this. This is sort of in character for him. And he does see himself as, you know, the pirate going up against the Armada, I think is the analogy they make internally at Endeavor. The more surprising thing is that Brian Lord responded. I mean, this is a guy whose entire brand at CAA has been cool, collected. He's the adult in the room. He's the ultimate negotiator. And he has never really responded this way to the poking from Ari. And then here he sits down with you. He calls Ari Emanuel erratic, self-serving. He questions whether he has any clients left. He says he's not doing a good job for his investors or his team. Why did Brian respond so forcefully here? Well, CAA may be feeling particularly sensitive on the subject of this lawsuit because it really does call into question the morals and ethics of the people at the top of that company. And as you noted, neither of us has enough evidence to know whether the lawsuit is legitimate or not or whether all the claims in them are true. But even if a little bit of it is true, it's pretty damning for people with the reputations that Brian Lord and Kevin Huvane and Richard Lovett have. Well, they're in the service business. Yeah. I mean, they have to care so much about the optics of the situation. And I'm sure they're getting questions from clients like, what's up here? And listen, if anybody compared me to Ghislaine Maxwell, I'd probably respond too. Well, and if you're looking at this and saying, of all the people to compare me to this person, it's Ari Emanuel, who, oh, by the way, and this is a point that Brian made, has bought one company in UFC led by a guy, Dana White, who's like been on camera, I believe, hitting his wife, or at least has been accused. That is true. I saw wife. the video. He slapped his wife at a bar in Cabo. And the other one is they, they bought WWE, and that's Vince McMahon, who's been accused of sexual harassment and had to take a leave of absence from his company. I, just, I think if you're Brian Lord, the idea that this guy is the one accusing you of being immoral or unethical, it probably just really rubs you the wrong way. I mean, I was there, and I watched the interview, and Brian was clearly shaking and like not comfortable even going there and answering. It also seemed like he had been prepped by PR people and sort of how to respond and see the waters on the character issue, but not specifically naming Dana White or Vince McMahon. So I think this was out of character for him, and he was kind of uncomfortable going there, but he probably felt like he had to respond. This guy's out there. Not, it's not just poking. It's not just saying we're better than you, whatever. It's specifically impugning his character and his partner, Kevin Huvane's character. And I think that's why they responded. All right, we'll see what happens. Thanks very much, Lucas. Thanks, Matt. All right, that's Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. Kim, we'll be back next week. In the last three decades, documentary filmmaker Ken Burns has become synonymous with Americana. He's produced critically acclaimed series about the Civil War, jazz, baseball, prohibition, and much more. 
Burns has developed a highly recognizable style that has influenced other filmmakers and has even been parodied on late-night shows. It's a compliment. In his latest work, The American Buffalo, Burns examines the millennia-spanning relationship between indigenous communities and the American bison. Part one tells a heartbreaking tale of how white settlers nearly drove buffaloes to extinction with a devastating effect on native tribes. My people in the buffalo have a shared history together. The buffalo was sacred and they could not imagine existence without the buffalo. They were put on this earth to help us survive. To think that our greed and our industrialization would blink this thing out. This is the buffalo's last chance. They've survived, we've survived, we both persisted. Let me begin by saying I learned a lot about buffalo. I did not know that buffalo can jump six feet. That is amazing because, you know, they're very large. I don't know how they, and they can run fast too, right? Right. And they actually can clear a six foot fence. They can jump laterally seven feet. I mean, it's just as Steve Ranella, the great Western writer says, you know, they're a souped up hot rod in a minivan shell. <laughs> That's evocative imagery. I am curious how you came to the subject of the buffalo. Well, you know, it's the largest land mammal in the United States. It's now our national mammal, but it's at the heart of a great deal of American history. We do a lot of biographies and and biographies are also the constituent building blocks of some of the big long series that we have. And we just thought for decades, wouldn't it be great to do a biography of an animal knowing full well, it would help sort of break up kind of traditional and conventional approaches to this very complex history, particularly the 10,000, 12,000 year old history that Native Americans have had with this animal. And more recently, uh, that white Americans have had with this animal and two different competing views of the natural world. And it was a way to sort of recast and recenter perspective. Yes, it's uh, in many ways a very heartbreaking story with effects that are present now. Well, I think I think a way to think about this is that you deal with our inventive Hollywood and television landscape and some of the shows that are based on sort of supernatural premises. What if dozens of communities suddenly lost all their churches, synagogues, and temples, and then all of their grocery stores and supermarkets at the same time. That's what we did, basically. We took away from people um, not only their sustenance, their material sustenance, but their spiritual sustenance. And that trauma, that severing of that connection that had been there for so long is an amazing pain. And what we tried to do was understand it, not just from the sheer facts of the extermination of the buffalo, um, but also from the point of view of Native Americans to sort of give a full picture of what that means to lose your commissary and your spiritual being. It's not a physical place, obviously, but the buffalo right. is in so much of what was sacred to many, many Native tribes. Yes. Now, let me turn to the question of money. Uh, I read somewhere that you made this deal with PBS at some point for years of documentary films, like going forward for at least 10 years, I think, like 2007 to 2017. Am I remembering this right? So I have always tried initially, once I realized how foolishly time-wasting it is to sort of raise the money for a project, work on it, and then stop. 
is to realize that I've got several projects that I'm going to do. So first it was a couple of five-year plans and then 10-year plans, but it didn't have to do with PBS. It had to do with me and other sources of funding like foundations or individuals. Uh, and, and eventually it got around to making a deal with PBS that I would do all of these films. Their contribution is relatively modest compared to a corporate underwriter. General Motors was for 22 years, Bank of America has been for the last 17, and they might give, it doesn't really work this way, but it might work out to be around 20%, 25% of any particular budget uh, for any particular production we're working on, whereas PBS might be 10 or 12, maybe maximum 15%. So it's less a deal with PBS as it is saying to all the sort of various sources of funding, and they are corporate and foundation and individual and governmental, uh, we're going to do it this way. Uh, we're going to do these sequence of films. And if you're excited about that, wouldn't it be better to not just do it on a one-off basis, but do it on a continuing thing? And so the 10-year plans are more for my own need to sort of wake up knowing you know, that the film that I've got is already now 50% funded. And now I have to go specifically find out as I'm working on it, the rest of the money or 60%, you know, whatever it may be. So do you have to go, you know, with your own tin cup? And, yes. and yeah, no, 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 it's very much tin cup. And uh, it's very much time consuming, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, I was approached by someone recently who said, why don't you just go to a premium cable or a streaming service? And and I could. And, you know, some of the larger budget things like Vietnam were pushing $30 million. And I could get that with my reputation on one pitch, but they wouldn't give me the 10 and a half years I took to do the Vietnam project. Uh, mm -hmm. That's the thing. PBS has one foot tentatively in the marketplace and the other out. And so while they do do a little bit of funding, they're not in the funding business. They're in the broadcast business. And they're, I, I have been able to have essentially my director's cut for every film that I've made because there's not a suit telling me to make it longer or shorter or less sexy or more sexy or more violent or less violent. Mm. It just is the story that we can incubate in some cases over a decade. And it takes that long to master the complexity of the story of Vietnam, for example. Well, you've opened the door to the probably your least favorite question, but I'll just dispatch this subject. There was this photo recently of that surfaced in the reporting on Clarence Thomas of you with David Koch and Clarence Thomas. And I tweeted, actually, because your spokesman or whatever said that you had barely even met Clarence Thomas, that I have actually spent more time with Clarence Thomas than you have. Well, well there I, you go. Let's turn the tables <laughs> and let me talk to you about it. No, I, I, this was like years and years ago. I, he had given by phone, I never met him, some completion funds for a film in the late 90s on Frank Lloyd Wright. This is and David I, Koch we're talking about now, right? Mm -hmm. And then I knew that he had been a big funder of a lot of PBS science programs in the intervening years, but I had never actually met him. And I was invited to some history lecture and he came up and introduced himself and he said, Hey, you want to meet Clarence Thomas? And I shook hands with this guy. We said some, you know, inanities and right. that was it. I forgot totally about that. And, and that was like 10 or 12 years ago. I, I'm not right. even sure exactly what the, the date stamp is, but I plead guilty, I guess. So you're at the Bohemian Grove in this picture. And I was surprised, first of all, that David Koch, I guess he has he had very libertarian politics. 
he wanted specifically to finance or help finance the Vietnam War series? No, I went to him. I realized that the Vietnam War was and still is a gigantic uh, lightning rod. And so well after that picture was taken, I went to him in New York City and asked him to be involved because I'd had some liberal donors and I didn't want anybody to think that in some way I had an ideological bent. I wanted to tell a very, very complicated story that has a lot of new scholarship involved in it. And, you know, he was generous and that was it, you know. And of course, because it's PBS, there's a line of church and state. Nobody can come in and say, hey, change this or change that, or I don't like that. So Right. And you knew, I think I read that you had expected that no matter how you make the series about Vietnam, it's such an emotional charged topic that you were going to get blowback from some side or all sides. And I don't know, did that happen in the end? No, you know, what was so interesting, Kim, is that we we really were quite conscious of it, not frightened of it. I mean, we just, we know what it's like to come out. I made a film on the Civil War and that brought, you know, the Sons of the Confederacy out of the woodwork and, and things like that. You know, jazz, which you'd think wouldn't be controversial, was hugely controversial because I was accused of a reverse racism, privileging African-American Black composers and musicians over white ones. But uh, we presume the same sort of thing would happen here. And we assembled a war room of, of politicos and Washington, both Democrat and Republican, Senator McCain and Senator Kerry were incredibly helpful in identifying personnel. And basically, cobwebs grew on them. I think it had to do with the fact that the story was so new and so compelling that except for the extreme left and the extreme right, both of whom, you know, can't wake up without having to, to a get grievance, yeah. <laughs> a grievance or trolling or whatever it might be, you know, I just was kind of surprised. And I and I really feel good about that. And I, a lot of that has to do, again, with PBS, the fact that we can spend that amount of time. I'm I'm in my barn right now where we have big, huge meetings of consultants. It's built as a not as a barn for animals, but as a barn for human beings. And we have these big meetings. And in Vietnam, we'd have these things where we had 23 scholars. And each one of them was doing sort of cutting-edge work. And you knew you were onto something because – Somebody would talk and respond to an episode and say, what really happened is this, and I can give you the citation, and I know the document, or you can see on page 37 of my most recent book, right? And everybody else, the other scholar, the other 22 are going, wow. And then you get to the next one, and the same thing would happen, that you realized you were right there, like surfing right on the edge of a curling wave, and that we'd be able to sort of include in this just the very, very latest. Coming up after the break, Ken Burns says financiers haven't bothered him about runtimes for years. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now. 
at kcrw.com slash cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. In an age of diminishing attention spans, documentary filmmaker Ken Burns isn't afraid to tell long stories. With projects like The War clocking in at 14 hours or Jazz rounding out to 19 hours, the filmmaker continues to prove that there is an audience for long-form documentary storytelling. Burns joined us to talk about his latest series, The American Buffalo, and he sheds some light on how he juggles several projects at once. He also explains how he gets away with those long run times. You mentioned the wall between PBS and, you know, the church state and all of that. Does anybody say to you, 18 hours? Really, Ken? Maybe you could not? Maybe it could be like 15 and a half or something? It's so interesting. Um, when I brought Civil War, which was nine episodes and 11 and a half hours to the press tour in, in Los Angeles in 1990, everybody said, Ken, this is really good, but no one's going to watch it because everybody watches MTV videos and they're only two and a half minutes. We have no attention span. And besides <laughs> that, Stephen Bochco has a new police procedural in which they sing. It's a singing musical. Oh, called Pop Rock. <laughs> and that's going to blow you out of the water. And I said, all right. So that didn't happen. And no. they kept saying that about baseball, 18 and a half hours, about jazz, 19 hours, uh, about the World War II film, which was 15 hours, about the national parks, which was 14 hours. But they didn't say it about the Roosevelt's, which was 14 hours long. And they didn't say it about Vietnam. And they didn't say it about country music. And the reason why is because... MTV had long been replaced with YouTube and a kitten and a ball of yarn as indicative <laughs> of our low attention spans. Yes. We have more stuff distracting us now and agreed our attention spans are often quite small, but all meaning accrues in duration. That which we're proudest of has benefited from our attention. And so what do we do with the tsunami of stuff? We binge. We are after consistent content. We're after sustained experience of content. And so, thank God I don't have to answer the question anymore. It is people are willing to do something if you do it well. If you don't do it well, they won't there. It's skywriting and it disappears after the first breeze, the first zephyr. But if you do it well you'll have an audience. And now with streaming, they can do it on their own time rather than buying DVDs or or waiting for the actual broadcast date to happen. So basically, in the days when those critics were asking the questions, no one on the funding or PBS side was. I mean, the, you you had that autonomy. Well, yeah, but I do remember, and it'll go unspoken, an institutional funder, not PBS, who, you know, had been involved in, I think, perhaps every one of the six or seven films I'd made before that on Brooklyn Bridge, The Shakers, Huey Long, The Statue of Liberty, The Painter, Thomas Hart Benton, and The History of the Congress. I think I just said six films. Um, <laughs> they just said, you know, we don't think that interest would be sustained longer than an hour, an hour and a half looking at still photographs about the Civil War. And they turned me down. And, and I came back again and I did get some money, but it was, it was interesting. It was anxiety producing because I was graduating from using still photographs, but it wasn't about attention span. It was about what the film was made up. It wasn't its length. It was what it was made up. No one will look at a slideshow. They were essentially saying, but my whole idea, which is of course, superficially mimicked in the Ken Burns effect on iMovie is how to <laughs> treat 
an old photograph like a feature filmmaker does a master shot with a long, a medium, a close, a tilt, a pan, a reveal, an isolation of details, whatever it might be. And, and using complex sound effects and music and first person as well as third person narration to help will that photograph alive. And as we know, you know, the Civil War is still the highest rated program in the history of PBS. So it worked. There was some back and forth, actually, when you mentioned the Ken Burns effect about Steve Jobs. I'm trying to remember what I was having to do with it. Steve Jobs and you and him donating equipment. Tell oh, yeah. So, so I met Steve. Uh, he asked me to meet him and he showed me this Ken Burns effect. And I just I mean, he showed me the thing and I'm a Luddite. And so I went. Okay. And he said, and every, this is, this is December of 2002. And he said, every Mac computer beginning next month will have this on it. And I said, okay, great. You know, like not knowing he says, and we want to keep our working title. And I said, oh, what's that? And he said, Ken Burns effect. And I said, look, I don't do commercial endorsements. And he goes, what? And, you know, we just, we ended up creating a really strong friendship. I'd stay with him um, when I was in Silicon Valley and sleep on, you know, in his guest bedroom and stay up late into the night talking about stuff. And I, I miss him. But what happened is that after a lot of discussion where he couldn't believe it, I finally said, look, you know, if you will give me a lot of hardware and software that I can give away to nonprofits, and I do admit that one computer, which we desperately needed, stayed in the office here. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> that's fine. That and so he said, oh, I get it. You know, that's that's wonderful. And so for many, many years, it, it's really, I don't, I never added it all up the value, but I'm sure it was close to a million dollars worth of stuff that we gave away, you know, Final Cut Pro or iMacs or, you know, whatever it might be to pre-tablet, pre-iPhones, but, but to nonprofit institutions like universities and folks doing good works. Were you flattered that it was called that? Or were you like a little you know creeped what? out or what? I, no, no, not at all. It actually is a superficial version of what I'm trying to do. It's just like you're panning and dissolving and zooming and you can add music. And I suppose, and every late night comic has teased me mercilessly about it for the last, you know, 33 years, but... And that's okay. I've been a willing participant in that teasing in many occasions. It's a compliment. But, but it, yeah. it's a compliment, of course. But it's 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 not what I do. I'm really interested in how you treat a photograph like an arrested moment in time, that that cart is moving, that that bat is cracking, that that crowd is cheering, that the cannon are firing, and that a whole complicated set of things go in to trying to will a photograph alive. And this was just a, a very simple version. And, you know, I've never used it, but I understand that it has saved uh, many a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah or... <laughs> memorial service or vacation or whatever it might be. And I'm happy always to say, thank you, but that's not me. That's Steve. He had these two techie guys in who were setting it up and explaining it. And when I said, I don't do commercial endorsements, they blanched and disappeared. And <laughs> then he and I were left to sort of argue it out. And I was pretty out of it. I'm, I'm actually sort of surprised I came away, but it, it did do a lot of good. You know, we gave away to a lot of good places, stuff that they could use. How many projects do you have going at any one time? Well, way too many now because I'm getting older and older. And I just realized that, you know, I used to say glibly that if I were given a thousand years to live, I wouldn't run out of topics in American history. That's true. 
but I'm not going to be given a thousand years to live. And I'm kind of greedy for that creative space. I love it. It's just so animating. There's nothing better than just working on a film and trying to make it better with your colleagues and people who work really, really hard. And I've been so lucky to work with so many great people. So, you know, right now there's like six projects going on and, um, I'm promoting Buffalo. We have a film that's most of the way through editing on Leonardo da Vinci, our first non-American topic. I was going to note that, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm working on a a major series on the history of the American Revolution. There are no photographs, no newsreels. So if you have any, (laughs) speak now, please contact me. Um, So it makes it kind of a very dynamic and, and challenging thing. Not that we haven't existed in the 18th century in other films, but not for this long and this consistently on a big series on the history of African-Americans after the Civil War called Emancipation to Exodus, mainly about Reconstruction, the most misunderstood. We're doing a big series on the history of uh, LBJ and and the Great Society, on crime and punishment, the whole history of that in the United States, how we went from being inventing this modern progressive penitentiary system to a country that has, you know, like 4% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners. Something went wrong there. And a few other things that are sort of in early infant stage it's it's exciting and you wake up and it's like having a a brood of kids and you recognize that each one of their voices and you try to help whoever's nose is snottiest you know (laughs) uh, to get through the day ken burns executive produced and directed the american buffalo the two-part film is now streaming on the pbs app thank you for talking to us today thank you And that's The Business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from John Meek, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.